The Quest community, welcome to this special series that we're doing with the leaders of the RIA aggregator and integrators. So these are the firms in the registered investment advisory industry that are doing what is now 91% of the deals, which are mainly these private equity funded, larger RAAs that are looking to buy up and are buying up and doing many, many deals in the space. Other RA firms, whether they're independent or sometimes from IBD platforms or even doing some deals with wirehouse uh, advisors. Um, so we are fortunate enough to have some of the, the leading firms in the industry doing these deals, and we have them on uh, in this special series so that people who are interested, right, advisors in the industry who are potentially interested in selling their firms can understand the different models out there. Because one of the benefits of the uh, evolution and the maturation of the RA space has been that there are more aggregators and integrators, there's more funding for these, there's more private equity. Uh, but as that happens, there also is more confusion mm -hmm. as to all these different options out there. What are the different models? Why is one better than the other? What is the best fit for me? So the purpose of this series is, that, is to give the opportunity for each of these amazing firms to talk about their different models, talk about who they're looking to target, who they attract, and have you be in a better position as a potential seller to understand your options. And for those of you who are not in the RA space, you know, I would listen anyway. It's also a fascinating look at how the industry has evolved and how an industry matures, and frankly, what the different acquisition models are that could be applied even in other industries. So check out all the videos in this special series on the RIA aggregator and integrators. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out of the box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind the scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions, smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest podcast. Let's get started. Bob Oros is the chairman and CEO of Hightower a national wealth management firm that invests in and empowers independent-minded financial advisory businesses to drive growth and help clients achieve success. Mr. Oros joined Hightower in 2019. Under his leadership, the company has completed a number of acquisitions of high-profile independent wealth management firms, expanded its operational and business acceleration services for advisors, and achieved consistently strong organic growth. Bob has more than 25 years of leadership, strategic, and operational experience with a track record of successful recruiting, retaining, and supporting advisors at some of the top financial firms in the country. He also sits on boards and is involved with charities, is committed to financial literacy. His full bio is going to be in the, in the show notes. I really want to welcome Bob Oros to the DealQuest podcast and to this special series with the heads of the RIA integrators and aggregators. Bob, welcome. Thanks, Corey. Great to be with you. You know, Bob, I mean, you know, we've known each other for, I don't know, 12, 15 years, something like that, you know, through various iterations for both of us in the industry. And I want to get into everything that a high tower is doing now, what you see in the, in the industry generally in terms of deal growth and that kind of stuff. But before I do that, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe eight, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because I, I would guess a, the CEO of a, of a leading RAA firm and aggregator probably wasn't it back then, but you tell me. Well, it definitely wasn't. It definitely wasn't that. I'm trying to think when I was 8, 10, 12 years old. You know, I'm not sure I ever had some big aspiration of some specific thing. But what I would say, like I was always a hustler, like in a good way. Yeah. So like if I could make a buck mowing lawn, delivering papers and, you know, I try to share this with my kids and they just don't really care. But, like I got <laughs> up at 5.30 in the morning to deliver the newspaper. Yep. And like, you know, like that was getting the papers on the front porch, folding them up, getting them in the bike, doing the run. And then you had to go collect the money. Right. So, right. so I think I learned from a very early age, like being an entrepreneur is kind of fun. Making a little bit of money was kind of good, even at age eight or 10. So I just always knew I'd love to work. Yeah. So I, I don't know if I ever had some big idea what I would be. 
Love it. Love it. You know, and, and listen, I, I actually don't know how you grew up, but, you know, you made the comment about your kids. I mean, I'm guessing that it may be likely that, you know, you, you grew up in a, like, I, I know I grew up in a much less affluent family than I than I I did. So that that hustle, that need to hustle, I mean, my parents didn't have a lot of extra money to give me when I was younger, at least. Fortunately, they did better later in life, but but certainly growing up, I mean, we weren't poor. We had food on the table, but it was lower middle class upraising for me. Yeah, I, th- I think you and I grew up in the same type of, of, of household and like we had one bathroom. You right. had your we shower too. time in the morning. If you missed your time, <laughs> eh, you're going to school dirty. Right. Yeah, my, my kids don't have any understanding of that. And I guess that's the way it's supposed to be, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. One other question looking back. What was your first deal of any type that you can remember? It could be something when you were a kid or early in your career, any kind of, you know, any kind of deal of any type. Any kind of deal of any type, you know. I, I you know, I don't remember so much as as a kid. I remember as like a young professional being involved just in the peripheral of a deal, like going and doing some due diligence. Yeah, yeah. And and thinking it was like like really interesting. You know, it was just fun to go in and sort of ask questions and learn about another business. And then I'll say the other thing I remember was early 90s, and you probably were of the same age genre, but do you remember when Glass-Steagall was repealed? Oh, sure. And yeah, yeah, all yeah. these banks that started to merge. Like I was fresh out of college working at a bank in Detroit that was merging with another bank in Detroit. So two mid-sized banks. Somehow I got tapped to be on the team that went over to the other bank and worked for a few months. And like, just remembered it like being really interesting. Never thought I would end up in a place where I was doing a lot of deals. And, you know, we, since I've been CEO, we've done 37. Wow. I think is the latest count. So, you know, it's a lot of fun, but like deals just to do deals isn't the point. Like deals have to create value. And I think we'll get into that in our conversation. Yeah, it's been an interesting evolution for Hightower. And I've actually, you know, have had some involvement in that. And that, and you may not even know this because it was well before your time, but probably about eight plus years ago, you know, Hightower, if I remember right, I think they used to call it, they had the, like the partner model and the affiliate model. It wasn't, you know, weren't really doing, weren't, weren't in an acquisition model. And about eight years ago, so I actually came in and did a full day uh, whiteboarding session with the execs at the time, again, it was before your time there, where they just wanted to get the landscape of what it would look like to start doing M&A, to grow through M&A, what was out there, who were the play, you know, players, obviously nothing confidential, but you know, what are the different deal structures? What is the market looking for? So I had the pleasure of doing that back then. And then also when Hightower started buying its affiliated firms, you know, we did several of those deals from the sell side, you know, representing the the counterparties to Hightower, of course, they were all very friendly transactions, including one of the biggest, one of the biggest Hightower teams. So, you know, I was, I was involved in some of those early internal deals. And then of course, Hightower started moving and doing external deals as well. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. We're going to be 15 years old next March. I think we call March 1st as the, the anniversary date. And in some ways, like 15 years is not that much history. I mean, you, you know, we meet a lot of RAs that have been around 20, 25, 30 years or more. But, you know, also Hightower in 2008 was like a revolutionary idea. Yeah. And, I, and I think like many, you know, entrepreneurial stories, it's a journey. And you have to be, you know, willing to sort of go with the flow and change as opportunity presents itself. And so, like we often describe it, Corey, as chapter one was about lifting out teams primarily out of the wirehouses and giving them a new way to be independent and to really serve their clients in their clients' best interest without a bunch of proprietary product and other potential conflicts. And and that served us well. And we had a ton of growth. We brought some great advisors here who, as as you mentioned, most of them, the vast majority of them are still here. Right. And, And love that about our culture that like we have some real enduring relationships. And then we started to see the, you know, the, the game changing, the environment shifting. And you're right, that was before me, although I'm a lifelong, for the most part, RIA guy. Yep. You know, as you know, when you and I first met, I've, I've spent my career at the big RIA custodial firms like Schwab and Fidelity. So, 
you know, I think Hightower did its first RIA deal in 2016. And, you know, like a lot of deals, the first one you do, you learn a lot and you start to figure out like, well, do I want to do another one? And, you know, we went from sort of doing like one at a time, single threaded to, to now being multi-threaded with three distinctive deal teams and doing anywhere from, you know, 12, 15 or more transactions a year. So it really has been quite an evolution. Yeah. And, and I think you're right. I love the way you put it, that the smart firms evolve. And, and listen, one of the things I always say with the RA space, I mean, as you said, 15 years is on the one hand, there are people who have been around longer, but this, this is a pretty young industry, right? And 15 years is Hightower is, you know, maybe I'd say an old timer, certainly an adult in the industry, right? You know, in, in a very immature industry and, and, the, and the industry's matured a lot, obviously with capital coming in and things like that. But I, I've seen the maturation of other industries. I've seen consolidation. I've seen money come in spaces. And we're still, in my mind, I don't know, maybe in the second or third inning, you know, still, even though even though there's been a lot of evolution. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with you. I think just the data tells you that. I, I mean, it's a very fragmented industry. There are still, I'm going to use rough numbers, there are still north of 15,000 SEC-registered investment advisory firms out there. Yep. And, and I think the numbers would tell you the industry has become more fragmented. It's not getting less. E- even though we talk about doing record numbers of transactions, it, it just sort of makes the point we're still pretty early. And, and what I think is really cool as someone who's been around the industry for over 20 years, like we could have never imagined an RIA with 50 billion or more in assets or 100 billion or more in assets and now we're going to have a bunch of them. Yeah. And, and there are great firms who, you know, are doing similar things to what we're doing. Although, like, we all do it very differently. And, and I think it's why, like, you see us go to a conference and get on stage together. And it's very collegial, if not friendly, because, like, we all have the, our unique approach to it. And as I always say, for, like, every seller, there's a buyer. Yeah. And it's just a matter of being really clear on if you're the seller, what your objectives are. And if you're clear on that, you'll find the firm that's the best home. And maybe it's Hightower, maybe it's not. And that's okay. You know, I think there's just, there's just so much great variety available to folks now. And I think it's just a great, you know, statement on our industry. Yeah. And, you know, and a few things, I mean, frankly, that's the main reason I'm doing this series is because you know, and listen, a dozen years ago, there was, I mean, forget private equity, you know, and M&A deals, there was barely any lending capital available in the space, right? You know, so it's been such an evolution over these last dozen years, and certainly these last, you know, five years, certainly in terms of the PE and, and, and the aggregators. But like you said, I mean, first of all, there's still a huge breakaway movement. So there's many advisors, still a lot coming into the space. And, and so as quickly as there's consolidation at one end, there's you know, refilling of those with new breakaways and and new models. And then and then also, like you said, with the different firms, I mean, one of the great benefits is there's so many more options for advisors out there who want to sell or do some other kind of deal, whether it's full acquisition or minority or some sort of affiliation. And then, of course, that causes more confusion. So this is what I love. I wanted to give folks like you the opportunity to really talk about your model and who you're looking to attract and what is the differentiator between you and the others so that these firms can make a better, be better informed about what's a better fit for them? Because I agree with you. There's, you know, I mean, out of the top firms that we're talking about, they're all quality firms and they just have different philosophies, different approaches, a little different deal structures. And some will appeal to some and some will appeal to, you know, to others. Going back to something you mentioned, because it's part of, you said you have three deal teams. Can you break that a little bit? So to tell us more about that and how that impacts the way you do deals. Yeah, as I mentioned, you know, we did our first deal in 2016. And, you know, the first time you do anything, you can look at it as maybe it was an accident, maybe it was done on purpose, but somehow you found your way into the transaction, you did it, and you made a decision to do more. And so, like, we've invested in this as a core competency. Yeah. And, you know, and the one thing I would stress to a buyer or a seller is this is not something to enter into lightly. Like it's, it's not just having capital, it's also having know-how. And if you don't have both, you can actually do a lot of damage. And, and that's not to like try to deflect and, you know, not create any more competition. I think competition is, is healthy, but like it is an area that you better know what you're doing if you're going to enter into it. 
So like we made a decision, we thought we could be really credible here. We wanted to make it a core part of our strategy. And so we've invested in it. So our M&A team, Corey, is 16 people. Yeah. And that doesn't even include another dedicated team that focuses on integration, yeah. which is a whole other topic. And frankly, the one that really unlocks value. But just going back to the 16 people, you know, as I mentioned, we now have divided up into distinct deal teams led by a deal lead with analysts supporting them. And then we also have an internal sourcing team. So like we love to work with the different bankers and consultants who play in our space. And we, I think, work with virtually all of them. Yep. But we also recognize there are some who won't hire an outside party to represent them for any variety of reasons. And so we also have a team that is, you know, making outbound reaches and connecting, you know, with RIAs about talking strategically about the, the future of their firm. And it actually works. Like people answer those calls. We engage in conversations and we get like a nice balance of our volume. You know, it comes from both sources. And depending on the time, it'll sort of, the percentages will shift. But we've had as much as, you know, 50% of our volume being created internally. That's great. So, That's great. Uh, so you know, we, we, we're a big believer that not everybody should do a deal. But yes, I am saying that. Not everybody should do a deal, but I do believe everyone has an obligated to be has an obligation to be educated, which means if you're a founder or you're a principal of an RIA, you know, I think you need to lift your head and, and be purposeful around the direction you choose, which means be educated, you know, understand what's out there, understand like what could be the benefits to your clients, to your employees. And if the decision is I go ahead and stay the course, that's an informed decision. And I'll be the last person to, to ever have a negative opinion on that. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, your, your, your funding, right? Who's involved? Because obviously that's a big change in the industry. That's allowed a lot of deals to happen, right? Is that more capital has come in? You know, obviously the other folks we're going to have on, you know, who I've interviewed already have talked about some of their funding sources. And also, you know, there's an interesting conversation of where you want a funding cycle and then what the eventual plan is, right? Because, you know, we have not many, but a couple of examples of firms going public, you know, in the, in this area, we have examples of firms who, you know, and I won't mention specific names, but who, you know, ran through a number of private equity partners and then got to a point where they sort of ran out of, you know, options and, 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 and then, you know, sold. So there's, you know, there's a journey there that impact that eventually will impact, of course, the advisors on your platform and the ability to do deals and, you know, and, 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 and how to monetize. And obviously, ultimately, what we all care about is how clients are affected. So talk to us about the funding, you know, cycle for Hightower and then the view going forward. Yeah. And in, you know, January of 18, Thomas H. Lee Partners came in as a majority investor in Hightower. And, you know, that was an important moment in time. We, we were at a place where we needed sort of that, you know, fresh injection of capital, cleanup of the cap table, and like a, a majority investor who could really help us sort of reposition the firm. Yeah. And, and none of that is, is a criticism of where we had been because we wouldn't be where we're at today without, you know, that history. But it was time. We were growing up and we were at a place where we needed sort of that reset. We got it. And, you know, with THL, we have a phenomenal partner behind us. And I don't think of them as just a capital partner. You know, it, it's, it's just, it's a nice feeling as CEO to have smart investors behind you who are well-informed, who know the industry, who ask great questions, who give great input and make sure like the decisions we're making are sound decisions. Yeah. And I think that kind of discipline is good for our industry. And, and not just because we have a private equity investor, but they came in in January of 18. And in December of 20, we actually went through our first equity recapitalization. And, you know, it was an interesting time to do it because sometimes you kind of forget the calendar, but think about closing a transaction in December of 20 <laughs> means you were in market, call it mid 20. Yeah. And think about what we were all experiencing. We were in the midst of a pandemic. None of us had a vaccine. None of us knew when a vaccine was coming. We were leaning into a presidential election. None of us knew what the outcome was going to be. So it was a pretty interesting time to do it. But at the same time, we knew we had created a lot of value at the firm. We knew the opportunity in front of us we felt was going to be robust. 
And we wanted to make sure we, we, we had the right capital structure to support all the, the growth opportunity there. So we did a, a where Hightower recapped into a continuation fund. Shell continued to be our, our primary partner, but we also brought in, you know, 11 institutional investors who were passive that brought us fresh growth capital. And, and that's been a great structure for us. You know, it allowed us to really double down on the strategy. And as much as we're here talking about M&A and transactions, Corey, like if you were to ask me, what is our number one strategy? It is driving leading organic growth. So, mm-hmm. so we think, you know, deals aside, the most valuable companies are companies that can generate consistent leading same source sales growth. And, and we really believe like we've created one of those. And that's a you know, testament to our advisors who are just really good at what they do and aren't afraid to go out there and, and find new clients to do it for. And so we've, we've been really fortunate to have great organic growth, which is really what we think makes this most valuable. You know, the M&A, yes, is a core strategy. Yes, is a value creator. But in combination with the organic growth is really what supercharges it. Yeah, and, and I want to, I'm going to get back to the organic growth in, in a moment because that's really important. I don't want to parse that down. But before we go there, I want to take a little step back so people understand your model, right? And let's start at a very, very high level with what is an interesting distinction, but always, I think, somewhat an artificial distinction because it's not one or the other. But this conversation of aggregator and integrator, right? There are firms that really hype that they're integrators, others call themselves aggregators. But, you know, there are elements, I, I find everybody's got some mix of elements, right? And they can involve whether there's one brand, or, you know, or not, whether you have separate, you know, there, there are models where people keep, keep separate ADVs or not, right? Where you have a separate unregistered entity, where there's a single tax stack, is it, is there a single investment philosophy that has to be followed? All that kind of stuff. So talk to us a little bit about at a very high level, Hightower's model uh, in terms of that, at least conversation around aggregator versus integrator. I mean, if I want to be cute, I would say we're an integrated aggregator. But, lo- <laughs> but let me try to use plain English because yeah, I think the please. jargon isn't always helpful. And what I try to do is describe this on something I call the curve of conformity. How conforming does the buyer make the seller? Like yeah. trying to be just really, really clear here. And on the left side, you have some buyers that are very low conforming. And, you know, it's folks like Focus Financial, yep. Immigrant Bank great firms doing really good work, but like low conformity, meaning you keep your ADV, you really have a financial investor. On the other side of the curve, you have high conformity. So if you do a deal with them, you really are conforming to become them. And some great firms that sit out there, I I could name them all, have a lot of respect for them, know most of the CEOs personally, have respect for those individuals. And Hightower sits somewhere in the middle. Yeah. So there is conformity. We are single ADV. There are things that every one of we do for every one of our businesses, HR, finance, compliance, single technology stack, but it's a flexible technology stack. So you do get some choice within it, but there are places that you get no choice. So, uh, so we're a little bit of a mix. So there's conformity in all those back office areas. And then where we try to keep the autonomy And the individualism of each of the businesses is in the client value chain. So what is the client experience? So we don't have a single view of how you manage money. Like we we do have the capability to help our advisors if they want to turn that over to us, but there's no requirement to do it. Most don't. A few do. So, So you manage money the way you always manage money, the way you serve clients, what types of clients you serve. And what we really want to do is help unlock value by giving them access to scale, but then also access to new capabilities that can be value creating for their client. So I'll give you an example. We chartered a national trust company. So we have the Hightower National Trust Company, which all of our advisors can use as part of their estate and financial planning they're doing with their clients. So, so we're a bit of a mix. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's where I come back to something I said earlier. I think if you're a seller, be really clear on the two or three things that I say are non-negotiable. And it can't be any more than that. If it's any more than that, the list is too long. And I, I promise you will negotiate some of those things. 
But like if it's one or two or three things, at the end of the day, I just have to have. That will help you figure out where on that curve you probably belong. Yeah. And talk a little bit of how branding falls into that conversation for Itar. Yeah, for us, we're brand agnostic. So we have a wall here in our headquarters that I, I wish I could take you down it right now. I, I call it the wall of fame, which is a wall with a plaque for every one of the 127 affiliated businesses we have. Yeah. And what's really cool about that, other than the pure size of the wall, is seeing the brand diversity. Yeah. And there's a bunch of them that have the Hightower brand. And then there are a bunch of them where we don't have any brand at all. Like it's, it's the name of the firm. And then there are a, a, a number of them that have a Hightower company powered by Hightower. We're sort of agnostic. Like our view is, hey, wh- whatever you think creates the most value is what you should choose to do. We're not going to force a brand change. We, we'd like to think over time, though, that we will create value from the Hightower brand that you'll want to have association. And of course, we're fully disclosed because it's our ADV. Sure. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. All right. So, so now people have gotten a little better feel for where you fit on that artificial spectrum, but even more, I like, I like that conforming, non-conforming, you know, a, a reframe of it, Bob. So now, Listen, when I talk to my clients who are looking to be buyers, right? And, and you know, as I've, I've said repeatedly, you know, we don't really represent a lot of firms like yours because the PE, when they're PE back, they use bigger law firms on the buy side. But we do a lot of sell side. And we also do a lot of, I mean, less, but certainly plenty of buy side stuff for firms that are, you know, in that rung below the big aggregators and, and integrators. And when I talk to them, even at that level, I always talk to them about, building a model, having a value proposition, being clear on who they're targeting. This way they don't waste time. They don't want to waste advisor's time. And they and and frankly, I mean, unless it's the a one-off deal with your buddy down the street or, you know, whatever it is, you can't compete in what's becoming a more professional and systemized environment unless you have a clear value proposition, which means you need to have a clear model, which clearly Hightower does. So who does that, What what's the value proposition that that model turns into? And then who do you look to attract, right? Different firms out there are focusing more on buying up independent RA firms, focusing maybe on attracting from the IBDs or doing, you know, wirehouse, you know, advisors or some combination. And then also even demographically and, you know, psychographically, right? Older advisors, younger advisors, would G2, not would G2. Where does Hightower fall in terms of who you focus on as your ideal targets? So just to be really clear, we, we are not doing anything with wirehouse liftouts. So no more breakaways. Yep. And, and not because we think it's a bad strategy. I'm just a believer you can only be good at so many things. And like we've chosen RIA acquisitions to be good at. Yeah. Let's just assume we're good at it. Okay. So like Which you are. <laughs> and, and, and it's and it's a different business. So the way we do our transactions just doesn't really work with doing a lift out. Now we love it seeing those fir- those breakaways happen, forming their own businesses, because maybe down the road, we'll be having a conversation. So, so like that's sort of the first gate. We're looking yeah. for established businesses. Yes. Now, those could be an SEC registered RIA, or it could be somebody, you know, who's got their own business using a corporate RIA. So I would say the majority of our deals are standalone RIAs, but we've done a few out of the IBDs. And there's some really great advisors, you know, that are, that are sitting in those platforms. So they're sort of both like a good fit for us. What we're not focused on as a primary consideration is size or geography. Okay. So, and that may sound surprising because if you go back and Google us, you'll see we probably, our deals skew larger, but that's not because we've got a artificial number we're looking for. I think it's just more that's tended to be where there's a strong fit. What we're really looking for are great leaders because remember, we're not trying to come in and take over. 
and create a full conformity outcome. We're coming in and saying, we can take a great leadership team, take some stuff off their plate, empower them with new capabilities, and let them go do more of it. So first and foremost, we're looking to fall in love with leaders and leadership teams. Mm. We would like a G2 identified, like perfect, you know, is they've already developed that G2 a bit, uh, or even G3. But, you know, maybe we're not quite at that point, but they've at least got a team that they feel strongly about. We don't care where it's located. There's money everywhere. And, you know, size would, you know, really dictate whether we do the deal directly or perhaps we do it as a merger into one of our existing businesses. Yeah. So we, we've done a lot of that this year, Corey. We have two of our, our firms that are quite good at merging others in. So we've done a number of transactions into each of those. Second, although very important, growth. I mentioned organic growth before. Our industry, to some extent, suffers from a lack of real organic growth. Yeah. And hey, during a 12, 13-year bull market, everybody feels like they're growing. Well, because in a sense, they are. I mean, asset values are growing, revenues are growing, profits are growing. But what we're seeing, what's happening now like, do you have real same-store sales growth? Are you really able to go out there and attract new clients? So we're very attracted to that. We're not going to likely do a deal with someone who hasn't proven to grow consistently on an organic basis. Yeah. So it's really that combination of leadership team, growth, and, and we want leaders who want to stay around and work in the business. And then we think together we can take one plus one and turn it into five. Got it. Right. So you're not, you're not looking for, I mean, I, unless they have a, a G2 in place, I would guess you're not looking for retirement deals, you know, where somebody's, where somebody's cashing out and there's nobody to take over necessarily. I mean, as a tuck into maybe one of your existing firms, I guess that can yeah. work, but it's not, it's not your focus, right? Yeah. I mean, we would, we would only do those as a merger into one of our existing firms. And we do like that as a strategy, but like the majority of our deals are direct deals with leaders who still see a long runway yeah, and, and see a partnership as a way to create more value for, for everybody involved, clients, their, their team, their employees. Yeah. Let's talk about this organic growth conversation because, you know, I remember, and I forget where, where I saw it, so I can't attribute it, but maybe about a year ago, I heard a stat that outside of the top firms, the true organic growth rate, meaning adjusting for market increase, right? Taking that out of the picture was maybe under 3%. And and you're right. I mean, a bull market masks a lot of, makes everybody look good, right? And this ties into a conversation. Maybe you want to tie it into a conversation about that G2 and G3, because, you know, I one of the things, I mean, I've got a client now, we're dealing with it. I dealt with it with another firm, another client in the last year. You know, one of the great things about doing a deal when you have a G2 or G3 is that you have that next generation, but but one of the it adds challenges sometimes, right? Especially if the G2 has not been already equitized or things like that. And then there's different viewpoints because they're in different stages of life and maybe there's different benefits from doing a deal from the different generations. And also there's this question that G2 often has is, well, listen, if if I'm at an earlier stage in my career, you know, can I grow faster on my own, right? Am I am I selling out too early? So, talk about the organic growth in general, you know, if you want a little bit and then and then let's let's tie it into that G2 conversation. Yeah. Well, I mean, so organic growth first and foremost and and we see this because and this is not embellished. We look at 5 to 600 deals a year to lean in to say 50 Yep. to get 12 or 15 or more transactions done. Yeah. And it's become a bit of science. So we look at a lot of firms. We see a lot of data. And, you know, this starts with mindset, honestly. Like, that is the first thing we're looking for is, do the principles of that firm have a growth mindset? Love it. What does that mean? It doesn't mean, like, I'm hoping for growth. Hope is not a plan. It means, like... I am, I've set up systems, I've set up accountability around growth. And like the best, most consistent growers have a strong growth mindset, yeah. wired for growth, go to bed thinking about it, wake up thinking about it, probably are dreaming about it. But it's like, it's in everything they do. They're, they're holding people accountable. They're establishing goals for new business development. So it's not accidental. Then what you have next to that is strong growth processes. I will tell you one of the 
Like it's the simplest thing, but I will tell you it's such a correlated factor is do you have a pipeline? Yep. And is it actually trapped? Like I don't mean like the, you know, pipeline in my head or the one on a sticky note. I mean like a true process around pipeline, discipline around how deals get into it, how opportunities move through it. Do you measure it? Do you hold people accountable to it? Those who have a pipeline completely correlated to their growth. Yeah. You know, then we look at things like marketing, you know, and I think most advisors notoriously not great at marketing, phenomenal advisors, really technical, really great, great with clients, really great at advice. Marketing is not their, their discipline. And it's, and I think it's hard for smaller businesses to invest in real marketing know-how. So, you know, we have a team of 22 people in marketing, a full in-house agency that's really there to support our businesses. So you take mindset plus growth processes plus marketing, and then you're relentless about doing all those things. That's how you create growth. So you yeah. mentioned the staff. Hightower last year, you know, full year last year, same store sales, no market, 9% organic growth. Yeah. And in our size, like, you know, that's industry leading. I'm not going to yeah. say it's the, you know, the leader, but it's industry leading. And, and what we love is 75% of that growth, net new household growth. Right. Right. So it's not, I mean, getting money from existing clients is good. Getting money from new clients is better. Great. And talk a little bit about that, the conversation of how that and other factors affect the attractiveness of high tower for G2 and G3. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, the first thing you got to recognize is most of the time G2 and G3 have a very different sort of mentality to, to the business. They may not be the same risk taker that G1 was. Because yep. guess what? G1 was the one that started the thing. But what I love is hearing the stories about, yeah, I didn't take a paycheck for the first year. Hey, most G2 and G3, and throw it like most corporate leaders, like I'm not sure I'd want to go a year without a paycheck. <laughs> right. But like that's what that's the price founders paid to create something and the price of being an entrepreneur. So it's just a different mindset. The way a G1 grew the business is going to be different for G2 and G3. But we think G2, G3, and beyond are going to focus more on process, things that are repeatable not being the big personality or hanging out at the country club or doing those things. It's going to be, you know, more just disciplined process, more digital. So, uh, you know, those are the types of things we try to bring to the business to create long-term sustainability. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Before I move, I want to talk about the deal market generally and the RA environment generally. But before we go there, is there anything else about Hightower, your model, who you're attracting, anything else I haven't covered that you want the audience to know? No, you know, hey, I think to, to sum it up, you can think of us as a, a firm that's got national scale plus institutional capabilities that we're able to invest in. But then it's delivered through sort of that boutique independent approach that each of our advisors bring. Right. So like, I don't want to compare it to, you know, too cold, too hot, just right. But like, it's an interesting mix for someone who's still pretty entrepreneurial because they still have that operating independence day to day, but yet they have a partner who's going to do the stuff they probably like doing the least, who's willing to do it for them. So like, we're not a fit for everybody. But I think we're, we're a fit for those who still see a runway, who are hyper-focused on growth and being a great advisor. So uh, maybe that's a bit of a, a summation of everything we've talked about. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So let's talk about the landscape, the industry, the trends. We are recording it right after Thanksgiving, just to give people a time frame because you know, who knows what will happen in the next month, <laughs> you know, and a half, you never know. But, you know, right now, the industry, the economy in general and the industry in general have had a, you know, great run over the last 10, 12 years. Certainly over the last several years, you know, three to five years, the deal flow, deal volumes have increased, valuations have gone up, more integrators, aggregators, you know, come into, come into the field, more private equities come into the field, all, all these things we talked about. And, there are some headwinds, right? Or potential headwinds. So whether it's interest rates or inflation or the market being choppy, you know, it's been a little better lately, but you know, whatever, you know, and international stuff, things like that. Just recently, 
compared to when we're recording this. The pre- the industry press has picked up a lot on uh, on a uh, you know DeVoe and company a deal report that shows that I think he was saying deals are down were down eighty percent or something in in October. So listen, I remember Charlie Baker interviewed me for a for an article at the DeVoe summit, and at that time I was saying to him, listen, I haven't seen. I haven't seen an impact on deals at all about any of these headwinds. We're still, in general, deal flow is up. We're busy. Um, we haven't had a single deal that's not gone forward. Maybe at that time, I was starting to see a slight adjustment in deal structure, maybe a little less up front, a little more on, on the back end to hedge against uh, some things. But but you know everything else is staying firm. Since then, I've had an experience with a first deal. We still have plenty going on, but the first deal, first client decided they were working with a banker. They decided to stop the process because the way the market was, only one that's happened so far to us. But you know, now you've seen this reporting. So what are, what are you seeing generally in the industry? What is Hightower saying in terms of deal flow, in terms of valuation, in terms of deal structure? So, so take a quick look back. I mean, 21, I think most of us would agree, was like record volumes. Yeah. And, and a lot of things, you know, creating stimulus for that too. You know, a, a lot of concern about change in tax policy. So a lot of energy around getting something done. So we saw a ton of activity in 21. I would tell you 22 has been just as active. Yeah. Maybe even a little bit more active. Yeah. Now, what's more difficult, clearly, is getting deals done. Because, like, how do you value these things? Like, if you're a seller, it's like, yeah, let's go back to 12, 31, 21 and run rate. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, if you're a buyer, it's like, well, no, let's look at 930. So, you know, what I always tell people is, like, as a buyer, like, we're not trying to get this at a low point and, and steal businesses from people. I think it's about shared, you know, risk. How do you distribute that risk? How do we both sort of, you know, take our fair share of it. And, and I think if both parties are willing to, you know, sort of have that mindset, you can still find your way there. You know, I, I haven't seen, I think deals are slowing a little bit, especially right now. It's like, yeah, let's kind of see where 1231 comes in. And maybe, you know, 1231 offers a, a little better valuation than 930. Yep. May not be a, a bad strategy. I do think, Corey, you're seeing it in structure where maybe a little bit more gets put out into the future as opposed to, you know, everything up front. But like things are still getting done and new processes are still kicking off and advisors are still taking calls. It's just, you know, there's just a few more dimensions to this right now that we work through. But I always come back like to a seller, be really clear. why, Why do you want to sell? Like why is now the right time? Because if you don't have a compelling why, maybe you shouldn't do it now. Maybe you should wait it out. You know, and, and that's why, you know, I always say, like, not everybody should be a seller. So, so I think be clear on your why because it'll kind of help you remember why you're doing it. And, and there can be some very compelling reasons why now is a good time. Now, multiples, hey, from 20 to 21, I can't tell you four to six turns, something in that neighborhood on average, like you had a huge run up. Like I wouldn't expect, you know, multiples to continue to run. In fact, we've seen them now start to come back down. Yep. And, and that's not just a buyer saying the right thing. I mean, like truly we're seeing that come back. So, you know, there's never a perfect time to do a deal. You can always say, God, I should have waited or I should have done it earlier. So like, be clear on why you're doing it and be willing to accept that that is a bigger reason than what the valuation ultimately says. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting is that even even if valuations are easing off a little bit compared to historical valuations in this industry, they're still significantly, I mean, significantly higher. Number one, number two, some of that can be dealt with in deal structure. I mean, listen, like like you said, nobody, I mean, a firm like yours, and and you know, and, and listen, frankly, a lot of a number of your competitors are the same. They're looking for long term relationships with the advisors they're bringing over. They're not looking to get over on anybody. It doesn't make any sense to do that. They just don't want to pay for revenue that, you know, and, and, and EBITDA that may not materialize. So if you're an advisor who thinks the market, you know, will hopefully come back up, there are ways in deal structure to get that value if it does materialize and sellers are willing to pay for it. They're just not willing to pay for it up front if, because it's, yeah. you know, if the market's down based upon a year ago's numbers, 
you know, but if it comes back, it, you know, there are ways. And then the final thing, which is a really interesting point that I've been thinking about lately, because somebody brought it up on one of my recordings and I, I'm drawing a blank who, on which guest it was, not in the RA industry. So I, I feel bad I can't credit him. But he, you know, he said to me that the thing that people underestimate is that, you know, it's sort of like, you know, in the housing market, right? If you sell high, you're going to buy high if you need to buy another house, right? If you sell low, you're going to buy low, right? They, they always forget the other, the other side of the transaction. And the question is, what are you going to do with that money when, you know, if you do cash out, right? And, and if you're going to, you know, and, the, and there's some studies that actually show that people who sold companies in, in, in lower markets actually 10 years later did better because they were able to reinvest that money into cheaper assets at the time. And I thought that was a fascinating point that we don't take into account a lot of times that we only look at the one side of the transaction, but you got to do something with that money, right? And whether you're going to put it in the market and you think that'll continue to go up or you're going to invest in a business or real estate, you know, where prices may be getting a little more depressed, you know, you have that other side of the trade, so to speak. So an interesting point. Well, it's a really interesting point. And it's also why like all of our deals involve a mix of cash and high tower equity. Yeah. <clears throat> and, we, and we think it's a really interesting mix to have value creation opportunities still in your business, but then also in the bigger enterprise, because we're going to be valued differently than any of our individual businesses are when, when we do a deal. And so if you believe in the longer term strategy, and, and we love the fact our advisors collectively own a third of the cap table. Yeah, that's Like great. that's real ownership in the firm. And, and we built the firm to sort of recognize that. I mean, I have three advisors on my board of directors. So, so our advisors are an integral part of what's being created here. That's great. I love that. And listen, one of the things that I've said this often, but I always, I always like to repeat it because I really believe in it. And it's something that a lot of sellers don't, don't, don't think of it this way. I always tell my clients, listen, if you're going to do a deal on any of these platforms, right? Hightail is one of them where you're going to get equity. The way I think you should analyze that as a seller is as if you got full cash for your business and then took a portion of that cash and made an investment, right? In, in, in your, in your buyer, into their equity, right? Because that's effectively what happened. What's happening? You're just skipping a step, right? And 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 so, do your due diligence on the equity that you're getting. Where where do you sit on the cap table? What's the value on that? What do you think their growth is going to be? I mean, one of the reasons you take equity in a in a firm like Hightower, and I'm just this is a general comment, but I'm just using it as an example because Bob's on the podcast here with me. Is that you know you want to bet that their their equity value is going to grow at least <laughs> as fast and hopefully faster than yours would on its own. And there's a lot of reason to think. I mean, you know, talked about the organic growth rates. Right. You know, compared to what most firms are doing, you know, on their own, that's just one example of why, you know, not to mention that they're larger and get bigger multiples. You know, those are two of the reasons why, you know, you might bet on that, but you, you know, should be doing your due diligence. You should treat it as an investment decision on your part in your acquirer's equity. Great, great point. I think it's sound advice. All right. So listen, we could, I mean, you and I could talk forever. This industry is fascinating. Deals are fascinating. There's so much happening, but you know, it is a podcast. And so before I get to my last two questions, is there anything else you want to say on the market in general, what you see, you know, for the future? I mean, I listen, I mean, my, my, my soundbite would be, I think whatever short-term headwinds there are, the long-term trends in this industry are, you know, so much more, more powerful over time that I'm, I'm still bullish in general on the RA industry. You have anything you want to say at a high level on, on the market? Uh I would second that, Corey. I think it's a, it's a good time to be in the industry. And, you know, most of all, it's, it's the work we do on behalf of clients that we should all be proud of because we're creating better outcomes for people. And, and so the industry is being rewarded for that. And I think it's fantastic to see. Awesome. All right. So my second to last question is, so Bob, if people have an interest in, you know, maybe they're a potential seller and, and they have an interest in talking to Hightower, they want to find out more about Hightower in general, or maybe there are people listening to this podcast who are more on the client side, right? And have money to invest and want to, and want to talk, you know, what are the various ways or places that people should go to find out more about Hightower and in general and, and the acquisition opportunities? Yeah, I won't risk just giving my email address out, but like you, you can find us on the website yep. and, and connect to us through that and we'll, we'll get the right person to respond. Yep. And the website is? www.hightoweradvisors.com. There you go. Hightoweradvisors.com. Definitely, definitely check, check them out. One of the great plays in the space. Like I said, I've had a long history 
of knowing them. And I've known Bob for a long time. And, you know, he's a great leader that's coming in, I think, at the right time with the right strategy. And Hightower has done so many great deals. Bob, my final question on the podcast is always about my highest value in life, my highest ideal in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom from for all people from oppression to why I've been an entrepreneur for multiple decades and not a boss. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Well, I think freedom is something we should never take for granted. And you, you learn that as you just sort of watch the world around us right now. The fact we can wake up every day and sort of choose what we, what we choose on that day yeah. uh, should never be taken for granted. And I think it's so great that we can like apply that to our businesses. You know, we, we can, we can chart the course we want to chart for these and it's, it's, it's a phenomenal gift we have. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, one of the reasons I love, many reasons I love this industry is, but the more, this maybe applies more on the breakaway side is that I think the smart of, you know, there's always something the teams are running from, right? <laughs> Out the warehouse or whatever, whether it's bad bosses or heavy compliance or proprietary products or whatever it is. But the good ones always have a vision. And, and, and often that involved, you know, we talk about independence as RA independence. And I think I always look at that as a move to freedom. So that's super aligned with, with what I believe. So it's, I think it's one of the reasons I love this industry. Amen. Bob Oros, thank you so much for coming on this special series with the leading aggregators and integrators in the RIA space. I really appreciate having you on and for you being such a great guest. Thanks, Corey. Always great to catch up with you. I appreciate the invite. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.